Welcome to Gatekeeper, a podcast about booking from the bookers and gatekeepers who decide who's in and who's out. Also, there's other stuff. And now your host of Gatekeeper, Jamie Flam. Hello and welcome to Gatekeeper Season 2. I'm your host, Jamie Flam, and I am the gatekeeper. I think. So as you know, I'm no longer the artistic director at the Hollywood Improv, having left after six years to pursue my own dreams as a writer and producer. Well, it's been roughly two months since my final day at the Improv, the day I posted a Valentine to the club I loved so dear, that gave me so much, challenged me so much, and allowed me to step into the next phase of my life with a vision and confidence. So what have I accomplished since then? I consumed roughly 750 hours of Netflix, including anything and everything related to O.J. Simpson, as well as all five seasons of Friday Night Lights. I not only passed every single level of Two Dots, an iPhone game that you may or may not have heard of, I also achieved three stars on every level. And I've won more medals than any of the Facebook friends I have that are also playing the game. I spent roughly 9,000 hours organizing spreadsheets, which include contacts, past projects, future projects, past spreadsheets, future spreadsheets, ideas and thoughts about past and future spreadsheets, about future and past ideas and spreadsheets, all organized meticulously in my Google Drive and cataloged in a Google spreadsheet found in that very Google Drive. I've read 57 books, over 326 articles and downloadable PDFs, and subscribe to 150 podcasts about productivity, efficiency, and making your dreams come true. This all adds up to a grand total of 9.2 million minutes spent procrastinating from doing the things that I should actually be doing to forward my life and my career. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay, okay. So it's not the body of work that I envisioned producing when I left the improv two months ago. And none of that is inherently bad. I love reading inspirational books, and I've never been more relaxed and more organized. And I've even learned that with clear eyes and full hearts, you can't lose. Even if you're on trial for murder in Los Angeles in the mid-90s. But the most important lesson of all is to remind myself that as a writer, as a producer, as a creator, my only job is to write, produce, and create. There are so many tools that can help artists like us, but it's important to recognize when these tools are becoming detriments to what you are creating. One of the main reasons I left the improv, aside from the stress that I've talked about to no one on this podcast that comes with booking a comedy club, was to create some time for myself to reflect on who I am and what I'm passionate about. Really, what is my vision for the future and what do I want to create? And during this time, I read this quote from Tim Ferriss. The idea is to create yourself instead of seeking to discover yourself. There is value in the latter, but it's mostly past tense. It's a rear view mirror. Looking out the windshield is how you get where you want to go. 
So what's in my windshield, you're asking? Besides all this bird poop and insect splatterings, <laughs> I need a car wash. I'm bad. Do you know anyone? Please tell me. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I can find a car wash place on my own. First, I'm starting La Encantada, which is a production company and a home for all my ideas and future projects. Like me, the mission for La Encantada is to create things and experiences that enchant and inspire and entertain people. And that goes from live shows to content for television, digital and beyond. And of course, one day there will be a La Encantada theme park. That's right. Watch your back, not Berry Farm. Look, you got to start somewhere. And I figure the Berry Farm is the most practical expectation. But fuck me, their boysenberry jelly is amazing. I'm coming for you, Santa's Village. And so in addition to continuing to talk to gatekeepers and decision makers and artists about the struggles and the victories that come with making art, this podcast will also be a place where I will talk about my own personal ups and downs as a producer. My hope is that my journey to continue creating my voice will help you to create yours. At the end of 2009, I went to New York City on a personal mission to figure out if stand-up was what I wanted to do with my life. I was going to go there for a month and get up as much as possible, do as many shows, and determine whether or not stand-up comedy was the path for me. Before leaving for New York, I sat down and had coffee with Rob Delaney. He wasn't yet the big name headliner we all know today, but he was on his way, he was ahead of me, and he was happy to tell me about some cool shows to do in New York and give me advice as I was starting to take stand-up more seriously. One thing that Rob told me that I'll never forget because I wrote it down and pinned it to my wall and look at it every day was, go to the danger zone. When he told me that, I understood what he meant, but now I know. Other people have said things similar to that, like the bigger the risk, the bigger the reward. But for some reason, when Rob told me this, it wasn't just advice. It felt more like a command. And that piece of paper with go to the danger zone inscribed on it has been staring me in the eyes for the last eight years. And that means being vulnerable, getting out of my comfort zone, leaving my salaried job, and creating my future. <clears throat> okay. Um... No one ever said that being vulnerable wasn't awkward. <laughs> uh, speaking of uh, future, I am very excited about the first guest of season two of Gatekeeper, futurist comedian, Baratunde Thurston. He's a writer, a producer. He's worked for The Onion, helped relaunch The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, and is a great example of someone who has taken the reins of his own life and has invented his very own life and career. So enjoy the episode. As for me, I have a sit-down meeting with Kenny Loggins himself to discuss licensing his song The Danger Zone as featured in the hit movie Top Gun for use in the theme park that I will be creating. There will be an area called Danger Zone. There's going to be uh, rock climbing walls and fucking uh, zip lines and like a ride like where you're like... You start, but then you're in a not in a danger zone, but then you are in a danger zone kind of thing. And... One, two, three. Texting one, two, three. Texting one, two, three. That's actually pretty modern. It is. I mean, 
snapping one, two, three would be even cutting edge. Well, that's kind of the perfect intro. I'm with Paratunde Thurston on Gatekeeper. What's up, Jamie? I'm good. I'm being ungatekept right now. How to explain that? I, uh, I'm I, not doing my job. <laughs> no. Are you calling well, me actually, out? Well, I guess technically I'm very gatekept if I'm here, but I think I got here by going through the sideway. You did? Yeah. No, I, I, I reached out. I need to maintain my mystique. Okay. So if you would just allow me to not be gatekept. You have no gatekeepers. No I, gates around I here. I came in through the ceiling. So you um, are self-described, unless <laughs> someone else is writing your website, as a futurist comedian, a writer, and a cultural critic. Right. And that's fascinating place to start because I, I think we're living in an era where you create your own world, your own profession. Like, I don't think this uh, job title would have existed a decade ago. No, no, it would not have. It's definitely something I've, I've, I've forged around me. Uh, I've been a big tech geek for a long time. My mother was a computer programmer. So I got into technology really early on and that was how I built a lot of my writing and performance career on the backs of my website, on the backs of Friendster, mm. MySpace. Uh, so I started doing stand-up back in 2002 in Boston. And was that your first step towards a comedy career or, or I think, a career at all? I think my first step was coming out of the womb urinating over all the doctors. That was like my first yeah. bit. Um, but it was a mic dropper. It was an unconscious one. I think the the first conscious one was during college. I had a satirical newsletter Mm -hmm. uh, that I would email out to friends and then they would email out to friends of friends. And over time I got a decent subscriber base for that era of the internet. So my first comedy product was like my own version of the onion. Essentially Mm -hmm. the, the stand up would come a few years later after I graduated. And that was like even more public, uh, more humiliating. Uh, but also more more fun. Yeah. So, gatekeepers and the n- newsletter to your friends world. Are uh, there any? The gatekeeper was, will they open my email? Yes. Uh, it's a much lower bar than like, will so and so publish me? That's true. Um, emails is a self publishing on steroids essentially, which is why you get all kinds of nonsense in your inbox and spam and Viagra ads from princes that don't exist. But um, having started that way. It helped me develop my voice without trying to cater mm-hmm. to a, a very specific authority. I was really catering to myself and to these readers. And so what was working for them and what was working for me, that determined what I did, yeah. not what an editor approved of or would pay me for. Also, there was no money involved. Uh, was there any like, sort of like, other than this is so much fun to write this thing that people are reading, was there any other drive besides that? I, I I fancied myself trying to get the truth out there. Mm. Uh, sort of X-Files echoes as I say that out loud. I was really trying to inform people, legitimately try to inform people, but also make that more fun. Mm. I was a news junkie and I consumed all kinds of news through every opening, ears, eyes. I would eat it sometimes and I was frustrated that my classmates weren't as nerdy about news as I was. Mm-hmm. But just pointing my finger and saying, you should be nerdy about news. That wasn't effective. Uh, Repackaging news in a way that was more fun to consume. That was a big drive. And that was at a time, I mean, look at, you know, now in media. Yeah. Where everyone's kind of a news junkie and news nerd. Yeah. It's It's hard not to. It's much more accessible. There's many more people making it. Mm -hmm. There's people making alternative fact news. And like there's a whole other industry of propaganda that is much larger than Mm -hmm. it's ever been, though it's always been there. So yeah, the, the drive was, uh, I like people reading my stuff. <laughs> I make myself laugh. And I was trying to promote 
something closer to truth than uh, I thought people had access to. At that time, did you feel like that's the core of comedy was the truth? And yeah, you know, the, I think there's comedy to, to super nerd out in like a, a techie way. I think comedy is a multi-core processor where uh, there are elements of comedy that are about uh, exposing at least a different truth, if not the truth. Mm-hmm. There are parts of it that are about escape and sort of like healing uh, avoidance in some way of some kind of pain, uh, distraction. And, uh, and there are parts of it that maybe are kind of in between that, which are about connection. And uh, whether, you know, at the deepest, it's like emotional and like you're connecting with another soul. Um, sometimes it's very intellectual, connecting with another idea. So I, I think truth is one of the deeper layers, but I don't think it's the only thing. I think sometimes just buffoonery, silliness, escapism is a huge part of comedy. There's not like a super deep truth message in that. Mm-hmm. Um, multi-core, yeah. So would you say that that lends to your being a futurist comedian? And what does that mean? So for me, it meant like I'm a big tech user. Uh, I've been online for so long. This newsletter I was talking about, I started back in 1996. And uh, I have, I thought I was going to major in computer science. So there's a part of me that like, that cares about the world as it is. And a lot of my comedy is very commentary it. Um, I don't think that's the right word for that. Commentary it. My comedy's commentary. I'm gonna I'm gonna check myself and say that was bad English, but whatever. It sounded fancy. So, uh, but I, I because I've been like a part of institutions like the MIT Media Lab, which is sort of designing in the future, and I've spoken at techie conferences. I care about the world as it's emerging, <laughs> mm-hmm. and so my my futurist comedy ends up being some tech commentary about you know how we're engaging with Airbnb or Facebook or any platform that's you know defining us, and how can we uh, make that less horrible so that we don't create like the racist Skynet that I fear that we might be creating with all the algorithms and everything that are out there. So that's, that's part of what I mean by that phrase. Like I, I operate from a future kind of perspective. I also bring my comedic lens to some of the absurdity of, of how tech is affecting and infecting our lives. Like when you say Airbnb, um, like finding the humor and the fact that most listings tell you whether or not they offer shampoo. (laughs) That's good. I mean, if you could actually, you could go on an international tour uh, of just high-end shampoos Mm -hmm. based on Airbnb listings, that would be great. I think a real solid example is uh, a company I formed. I worked for The Onion for five years, and right after leaving there, I started this company with some friends from there called Cultivated Wit. We did a whole bunch of weird stuff. Most of it didn't stick, but the one thing that did was an event, and that event is where we combined software developers uh, di- designers and comedians to build funny software applications, mobile apps, and so you're literally coding with humor. Mm-hmm. That's futurist comedy. Like that's the futurist comedian. Is the type of person who would help orchestrate an event like that that would combine those previously uncombined forces in this weird comedy Voltron. How kind funny of are software developers as a whole? Uh, many of them are not as funny as they think. Some are far funnier than they would hope <laughs> for the wrong reasons. Uh, but they, you know, they have a strong perspective on the world. And I think in combination with people who are more practiced at actually being funny, those two can create things that neither of them could do on their own. And that's the true, like, that's how you know that, the, that a partnership makes sense. Like if you're doing something together that you could never do alone, 
you should be together. <laughs> Absolutely. And so you, that's how babies work. Cultivated um, mm-hmm. this community. Yeah. That it started as an idea. Someone had it. Let's put software developers and comedians together. Right. And then take us just through that. I think part of this podcast is like showing people like yeah. an idea to fruition. Yes. And I think in, in trying to stay under this broad umbrella of gatekeepers, like this is another way of kind of smashing some, some gates. Um, so the initial spark came from Craig Cannon. He was one of our co-founders. He was a graphics editor at The Onion. And the it happens over a weekend. So we invite roughly 100 people show up. And they have just ideas, right? They don't generally don't know each other. They've been mildly vetted by us, uh, looking at the fact that they're real people. That helps. Um, and that they're not going to be like assholes and douchebags. We really want a positive environment. So if you're just coming to like hate, does not really space for you there. So in that case, we are gatekeepers. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not about like how thick your resume is. Then people pitch ideas from a stage. They literally go up to a microphone and say, I think it'd be great if I had an app that was like a location app that showed me the location of my ex-boyfriend so that I just make sure I didn't end up at a bar with him. Can my help me build that? Cool. Or I want an app. Uh, I have a hard time giving out business cards when I go to these networking events. I'm really... If someone could build like a business card gun that would just launch my business cards for me physically, it's more of a hardware app I'm looking for. Anybody want to build that? Uh, I don't have any black friends. I'm thinking like Uber helps you get a car when you don't have one. What if you need a black person but you don't have one? Is there like a Uber for black people? So if, if I'm in a potentially racist situation or just want to feel cool um, or I want to like get a discount on something at this particular part of town, like black people Uber. So then teams form out of these pitches and anybody can pitch. You can be a comedian, be a designer, developer, um, and folks just kind of chaotically, organically form up. And then our role as organizers is to make sure nobody's alone, that the teams are actually moving forward, and they have about 24 hours to get something working together. And so everybody plays a different part. Comedians are better at making the copy, Mm -hmm. uh, punching up jokes, thinking about notifications. Like, what is the language of this notification in this mobile black people Uber app? Mm -hmm. Um, Meanwhile, the developers are very good at making the actual software function. Comedians are far less useful in the coding process. We tried that. It was really, really non-functioning tech. And the designers make it actually like something you want to interact with. It looks good. And Mm -hmm. part of why certain types of jokes work is because, especially satirical comedy, it's because it, it has the form of the serious version. It's why The Onion has worked so well for so long. It feels, tastes, kind of looks like news. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in the end, every team gets to present. A subset of them goes on to a final round where they perform in public at a large theater with like celebrity judges and uh, from the worlds of comedy and the worlds of tech. So we've had Michael Ian Black as a judge, Aparna Nancherla as a judge, and their prizes are trophies, like an inordinate amount of trophies, and love, and community, and friendship, Jamie. Uh, and oh. so what, we, what we've found coming out of this is the types of people who show up, they're not, it's not like, oh, I killed it, I was spotted at this festival, my manager sent me, like it's nothing like that. Right. It's not because you, uh, you know, were a student in computer science at such and such a top university. It's because you're open-minded. It's because you're curious. It's because you want to have fun and you're willing to play well with others. And then we provide that space for you to go ahead uh, and do that. So that is a, 
a pretty detailed overview of Comedy Hack Day. That's what the event and is called. That happens called. every year. It happens. Yeah, we've done this 12 times in the past four years, San Francisco, New York, L.A., and then we've licensed it so other groups run their own. People in Toronto, D.C., Chicago have run kind of independent Comedy Hack Days. Have any of these apps gone on to reach you know, big success? Uh, depends on what you mean by big and what you mean by success. Uh, but they have gone on. <laughs> that is for sure. So I think the best example of one that's kind of achieved escape velocity from Uber. From, from Planet. Yeah, if you may have heard of a little app called Facebook, <laughs> uh, which was uh, just the twinkle in the eye of a comedian at Comedy Hack Day who wanted to stalk girls uh, from the college yearbook. Mark was showing a lot of promise back then. No, uh, there's an app called Equitable. Okay. And Equitable was the idea of a comedian named Luna Malbrew from the Bay Area. And she wanted to build a bill splitting app where if you're out to dinner with friends, you need to split your bill. Um, but how do you do that, that in a way that's really fair? Not just equal, because equal isn't always fair. Mm -hmm. And she was really frustrated by uh, the pay gap for women making 77 cents on the dollar. There's a pay gap across races. And so this app will calculate the bill in an effort to close that pay gap. It's basically reparations one meal at a time. Black women pay the least. Turns out Asian men pay the most. And the app is legit. It works. It's in the app store for um, iOS. It's called Equitable. It's been written up all over the place. The video's gotten a ton of plays. Luna is actually out shooting uh, a series, I believe, for Al Jazeera Plus, touring the nation, basically taking her comedic chops and her interest in social justice and like equity on the road. And she's presented this at conferences and colleges and, and all kinds of stuff. So that's kind of big success for a weekend fun project yes. that had no real aims of like profit or prestige behind it. People were really just trying to have fun. Um, that's, that's one of the, the best ones. There was another one that's in the app store and I, I'd have to look up the name, but it's basically a, uh, it's for the iPad and it's for parents or people who have like healthy and legal access to children on a regular basis. And it's to defrustrate the process of reading to a child, which can be really repetitive because they want the same stupid book over and over again. And if you're a parent with limited time, and you have to read that nonsense. Like you learn less and less about the world. A little engine that could. Yeah. Again, Thomas the Tank Engine again. So what this would do is it would make real news look like a children's book. Mm. So you could choose a theme of like dinosaurs or monkeys or the jungle um, or tank engines, but not violating, of course, any intellectual property laws. Mm -hmm. And you could pull in a feed of sports stories or business stories, and it would have really large font with playful colors. So you could read, you know, about like the European migration crisis to your toddler. And who put would them right to sleep. Also get really smart <laughs> in the process. Yeah. That's amazing. So, I mean, you talked about, let's go back to The Onion. Was that your yeah. first job out of college, your first paid comedy? It was my first paid comedy job like one with insurance and a regular same size check that came once or twice a month mm -hmm. i'd done gigs here and then with like 20 bucks or 10 bucks or negative 50 bucks in terms of bringer shows where i had to pay people to come in off the street and yeah. see me perform or i'd lose my spot thank you new york comedy club but um the first job i had was a business job as a consultant the first comedy job was the onion and i started there i worked there from 2007 to 2012. That's a long stretch. And as a writer? I was there. It was a hybrid position. I like to create jobs that never existed before. So I had a dual title as initially web editor 
and politics editor. Eventually, uh, that kind of got rolled into director of digital. So what that meant was 2007, they were planning for the 08 election. They didn't have um, a coordinated sense of what that would look like across the new Onion video unit that had just launched that year, plus the writer's room that was doing traditional Onion print or text Mm -hmm. commentary, plus Onion radio news. They, They were kind of all independent. And so my job was to coordinate all that, create new types of comedy that we could do online and give it its own separate branded home, which in that case was War for the White House. And so I sat in the writer's room, but I wasn't a writer. I worked with writers, designers, the tech team, the sales team to pull all that stuff together. So I got to write some jokes. I got to write some stories. I wrote a ton of tweets and Facebook updates and other things like that. Um, and then the digital part was also involved in like leading the creative and the comedic end of what is an Onion iPhone app, what is an iPad mm-hmm. app for us, what's an Android app for us, what would an Onion game be, and uh, and how do we represent that voice in all these new outlets? So it was really futurist comedy. Totally. Yeah. I mean, and for me, I mean, the Onion was one of those things that like I should do comedy. Like, yeah, I think a lot of people very in comedy. Inspiring like the first thing you want to do is to be a writer at the onion yeah. or to be involved. So you talked about earlier before, um, that the onion, like there's a place of gatekeepers. Oh yeah, man. Explain like, <laughs> how do you get in at the onion? Uh, someone usually has to die. Uh, that helps. It opens up a spot. When I got there in November, 2007, I found out about the job from a friend and it was a rare posting where the onion was recruiting for an editorial position at a high level publicly. Mostly you have to have donated hundreds and hundreds of hours of your time for free Mm -hmm. as an intern, as a summer writing fellow, as a contributor from anywhere on the planet, just emailing in jokes, most of which will never get picked in the same way that, you know, the Tonight Show had a fax line to send in late night jokes for Leno and I'm sure things like that still exist until maybe a spot opened up in full time capacity uh, to be asked to write for health insurance. And so I came in with this editor title and this weird role of like, do I report to the editor of the paper? Which I did, but I also reported to like the president of the company, which so I had like two bosses, which is a little confusing initially, but ultimately the editor was my boss. Joe Randazzo ended up being the editor most of the time I was there. He was basically my boss. And uh, having come in that way, and I went through four rounds of interviews to get the job. I found out later 200 people wow. had applied for this politics editor position that they posted on a public site called Media Bistro. But mostly it's this long slog. And mostly people say, how do I write for The Onion? And you don't. Like Most super talented people don't. There's just not enough space. Mm-hmm. And I remember speaking at a conference uh, in Portugal, of all places. It was like a news conference about the media business and journalism. And I was rep- I like to represent the Onion at like serious journalistic um, events because it's just first of all you just can clown people but they they like it <laughs> and there's also a lot that the Onion can teach you about journalism sideways mm-hmm. and there's a there's a truth in it to go back to your question about truth and comedy there's a lot of truth in satire uh, and that type of fake news not the not the outright lies right. kind again totally different thing anyway this dude stood up was one of the last questions he was angry. He was an angry man. And it was like a town hall with an angry voter. And I was like, oh man, what do we gotta do? And he's like, why don't you guys let more of us write for you? What we wanna, we're funny. We should be able to write for the onion. Like he felt like entitled yep. to write for the onion. And he wanted to know literally why we were keeping him from writing for the onion. And that was 
the first time I publicly realized he had it all wrong. If you are begging for an opportunity to join somebody else's vision because you're that good, you're thinking about it all wrong. If you're that good, or even if you're just okay, you should be hustling to create an opportunity to express yourself. And in a unique and rare scenario, those talents of yours may line up with this specific opportunity. More likely, you'll find a way forward that doesn't involve working for the onion. Maybe it involves creating your own thing. And in a world where, I'm sorry, in a world where the price of entry and the barriers to entry are lower than ever. You're that guy? I'm that guy. Uh, But yeah, in a world where the cost to publish is almost negative, like it actually costs more to not say things on the internet Mm -hmm. than it does to put things out. Uh, And there's so much stuff out there. I'm carrying around a a high-definition recording studio that also makes phone calls. Like the phone call is a bonus feature in this smartphone. In that kind of world, to wait for someone to approve of you is giving away so much power. And I'm not trying to say it's easy to just go out there and make your own version of the onion, but that's kind of how I got my job at the onion. (laughs) I was grinding away for years with my college email newsletter. I had self-published a book we didn't talk about, but back in Boston, 2004, 2005, put out my own physical book of comedy, of satirical news. I've been grinding away at stand-up in Chinese food restaurants and steakhouses where the NCAA championship was louder than me. For years, <laughs> I thought thanklessly, but it turned out there was some eventual thanks in that when I had an opportunity to actually apply for a job behind this big gate, I happened to get it. But even if I hadn't, all that work wouldn't have been wasted. No. And I found so many other opportunities besides the gate kept one, the shows with friends, the book that I mentioned I was self-published, the other book I wrote called How to Be Black. Like there is... There's just a lot more possibility if you don't limit yourself to the imagination and the approval of some gatekeeper. And so The Onion is this dual story to me because I got through this gate. Mm -hmm. And so it can be very easy for people who've made it through to talk about how the gates don't matter. It's like easy for you to say, Mr. Comedy 1%, like you worked at The Daily Show and The Onion, go fuck yourself. But, But I also know from a satisfaction perspective that so much of the work I've done has been outside of those gates. It's been working with comedians like Mike Kaplan mm-hmm. on podcasts and just BS shows and seeing that magic happen in a, literally an underground room. Um, and it's been the self-started stuff, the blogging, the website, the streaming things I've done that were most of the way people know me yeah. is from stuff I've just done that found its way to them through largely internet-related you know, tech platforms. Uh, so yeah, that's a real long answer, but I'm trying to be as honest as I can that, yeah, I've benefited from some access to these gates. Um, I haven't totally maximized all those, I'm sure, as well. But I also have gotten a lot of satisfaction from not being obsessed with getting on the other side of the gate, but like building my own infrastructure or my own home or my own building. Yeah, not waiting around. And I yeah. think that's the theme for, for so many of these episodes is, yeah. and now more than ever, that's what people are looking for. You can't sit around and wait. And you said something interesting early on that's mm-hmm. absolutely the biggest theme of this podcast, which is entitlement. Yeah. 
And that sense of entitlement is exactly what's going to push those gatekeepers away. Yeah, it's just, it's first of all, I mean, if you think about it from a dating perspective, right, and the power and attraction dynamic when you're courting someone, if you approach someone like, I deserve to be your boyfriend, like, what, that is not how this works. You know, be awesome first, and she'll come to you, mm-hmm. or he'll come to you. It's way better when it happens that way. And I, I remember telling, you know, I didn't have an agent or a manager. Like, I started seriously in this when I started doing that took that first stand-up comedy class at the Boston Center for Adult Education in 2002. Um, and I took a comedy writing workshop that same time at a loft in Dumbo with Michael Abood and John Colton. Um, and I didn't have a manager until seven years later. I didn't have an agent until 10 years later. And so what the they didn't make me, right? I helped make myself, my peers made me much more than they did. And it wasn't about like sending my stuff out to all these people, please, 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 will you rep me, will you rep me? If you're doing something interesting and compelling, mostly they'll find you Yep. through word of mouth, you know, through a connection, through coming to a, a comedy club and seeing you, through reading increasingly online or looking at YouTube or looking at Vimeo. And that's just a better way. Wouldn't you rather someone approach you because they saw something in you than that you were just so pushy <laughs> that you badgered them into yeah. taking a meeting? And they know they're, they're approaching you, so they already like what you do. Yeah, they, like they, it, it's of their will. Yep. And so there's a bit more integrity to it. It's certainly more respectful of your actual talent as they've seen it versus whatever show you put on in your resume mm-hmm. or, or this perfectly packaged reel that you spent all this time and money on. You, you Not that reels don't matter, but I'm just, I can't underestimate just make stuff. You know? Well, make stuff because also you're connecting with other makers. Yeah. And a lot of times, and you know, to this day, like, um, you know, it's the email from a comic that I respect saying, Hey, this kid's going to be in town mm-hmm. um, in two weeks. Trust me. They're great. Yeah. That I will put that person up. Um, on the based on the word of this other person, yeah. like if you're making stuff that is the other artists that are gonna, you're going to rise up with them and they're going to help you. No, and and those the people who are peers may end up with some access or some authority. Like we don't have to be alone in this. I think there is a there's another layer of complication where if you know because this business is so network driven, like not everybody has access to the same networks, and so how do you mix that up? Mm-hmm. And if you are coming whether it's regionally or racially or whatever the angle is that's a little bit different for you how do you make yourself known and accessible and a part of because some networks are super deep and super dense and they were forged in a college or they're forged in an improv community that can feel like its own kind of gatekept world even though there's not so much explicit authority or any money in it uh, you know, the ideas flow more freely in there and they can feel a little off-putting or a little insular. So I, I recognize, again, it's not, there's not equal access to, to networks and, and social links, but there are some ways, and I think we all do better at like opening that up um, when we tell people to like work with others, make sure that we're welcoming other people to work with us mm-hmm. too. <laughs> yeah. So being open. Um, and you talked about uh, The Daily Show. Yeah. And it's another place of gatekeepers. Super, super tall gate. 
Super tall game. Take us, take us to the Daily Show. How do you get there? I got there through uh, a little-known uh, African dude named Trevor Noah. I met him because of my then L.A.-based girlfriend. I had screened a film, uh, a documentary about him called You Laugh But It's True. The director was there. He and I did a discussion afterwards with a live audience. That was my first introduction to Trevor's work. This was two years ago. It was before he was even a contributor to The Daily Show. He was living in L.A. at the time. And I loved the film. And David, uh, the director, was already familiar with my work, mostly because of the How to Be Black book. He's like, you and Trevor should meet. So we never physically did um, for another year, year and a half. But we had a correspondence through various short message systems, uh, some of which are still in business. And throughout that period... Were you vining each other? I'm not going to get into the details of our short message relationship. <laughs> but um, we, we saw something similarly. And as he was building his squad at the show, which was a very sudden and unexpected development for like everybody, you know, for people who work there, for him, for the audience, for me, and his desire to have me be a part of that was also unexpected. I was really staying, I was living out in LA by the time uh, he got that gig. I had my own canceled show on a TV network that doesn't even exist anymore. That's how great my career was. Like, they didn't even, they didn't just cancel the show, they canceled the network. That's how you know you were just killing it. On your premiere night? Yeah. This is just not working. <laughs> like, we don't even want people to be able to know where this was. <laughs> so, um, we, he and I entered in the spring of 2015 into a series of high-level diplomatic exchanges. Um, shuttle diplomacy, I was in New York, and we'd go out to lunch, we had phone calls, and short message exchanges on platforms I won't promote because they're not paying me to. And uh, we ended up crafting a role, kind of similar to my Onion situation, where I didn't go in as a writer, I didn't go in as a correspondent, which in some hindsight, maybe I should have just gone in as a correspondent and been a performer there. I went in with like two jobs again, one as a supervisor and producer, really like the only new executive on that squad when he first started out, other than him. Everybody else is John Stewart um, executives and, and the supervisor and producer um, who ran the studio unit. And then there was um, being an on-air contributor. And my specialty as supervisor and producer was, yo, build out the digital. Figure out what that means for us. Tell us what to do and then, and then do it. <laughs> and so upgrade mm -hmm. the way the show was represented in social media, uh, the way the content on air itself reflected the internet age, and create original content that was kind of untethered from the Comedy Central aired version of the show. And so it was a really big job, but I, the, the way I got through that gate, uh, I had done a similar job before, you know, in terms of The Onion and being director of digital there, and I didn't ruin it. <laughs> right? mm -hmm. And I did, we did a lot of things there that they wouldn't have imagined before I got there, and I wanted to bring that same thing to The Daily Show. So, yeah, that's the story of how I got there. Any, you know, I don't want to keep talking unless you have something else you want to know. But that's uh, again sideways entry coming in at a high level. <laughs> never was an intern. Let's never wrote like for the that, show before. The term sideway entry is yeah. I think that's ninety percent of the time how the people side get door is more interesting. Yeah, fuck the gate. Yeah, there's more than one way into the building. Secret trapdoors. And one of the best ways is just to create your own building. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. that's that's the thing that most people forget. Um, we get obsessed with like getting through the front door 
and and most folks i think if you were really honest about people who have some positions of power in almost any institution much less entertainment they probably didn't walk through the front door mm-hmm. they probably slid down the chimney you know cuz they're santa claus um or they came in through a window because they're a burglar. <laughs> or they, you know, they came through a skylight because they're inventive and it's like Mission Impossible. But you get it, like there's there's multiple ways to to come at this. And so I came at it that way, which has had its advantages and disadvantages. Like it meant, you know, as with the onion, I didn't come up through the culture. In my case, the culture was also radically changing mm-hmm. as I arrived, you know, because it's a whole new voice in charge. Yeah. How is that coming to a new show or an established show, a new old an institution? Show. Yeah, and um, you know, trying to pay homage to the past, but also be a futurist comedian. Yeah. Hard man. It was the hardest job I've ever had. It was super. Like, it, here's how hard it was. I took up boxing while I was working at the Daily Show because I just needed to punch things sometimes, yeah. and I'm not usually one to like get to that level of frustration or. Uh, hitting walls almost literally but I was like I need a channel for some of this because there's there's so much happening and the pressure of putting out a high quality product every day while all these changes are happening so it's it's really unique I mean it's 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 I kind of joked while I was there and since that I was at like the government of comedy and then you can't shut down the government while you're trying to reinvent it. Mm-hmm. People need their social security checks and their VA benefits. And, um, and there's a whole division of the government that hopefully will stay intact called the U.S. Digital Service that was doing that under President Obama. And hopefully we'll be allowed to even tweet under President Trump. We'll see. But so, yeah, it was honestly very hard. There were moments and more than just moments, but there were these especially moments where you're like, ah, that's that's what we're about. And, and so in a specific example, and I can be pretty vague sometimes, we, we designed and launched an interactive uh, tournament during NCAA month of March Madness. We called it Third Month Mania. It wasn't basketball teams in competition. It was ideas and, and people and objects that made you angry. And we were searching for, like, what makes America the angriest? Was it going to be tangled headphones or food trucks? Was it going to be global warming or lead in the water in Flint? Was it going to be Martin Shkreli, who jacked up those pharmaceutical prices, or Bill Cosby, uh, who is a horrible person? So uh, in the end, the the final round came down to global warming versus Trump supporters. Trump supporters took out Trump in the first round. Um, They were actually worse than he was. (laughs) And in the end, Trump supporters won, which I think foretold. What would happen later that year? Trump supporters won, with a little help from from my Russian friends, of course. Mm-hmm. Just a little bit, though. There were some other things going on. So why I tell that story because I'm proud of that result. But the way it came about was like illustrated the the best version of what my job there was. The idea initially came from a correspondent who was new to the show. The tech was built in partnership with Comedy Central. The network and a vendor that they knew the actual like design and and joke well the design layer was led by like my team and a bunch of people who had never been able to build anything this big before this unit existed like the most they did before i was there was send out some tweets and some vines maybe do some hashtag games this was like a full-on product (laughs) and uh, a lot of the written jokes came from that team as well as the daily show writers room and so, you know, getting 
a writer's room that's designed to write a headline segment, a desk chat between the host and the correspondent to punch up questions for a field piece. Like there are five types of things, for example, that a Dalish writer has to be really good at doing and you do it over and over and over again. And we were showing up and say, write jokes for an interactive tournament, not about a sport, <laughs> right? Yeah. What would be the joke for the contest between tangled headphones and food trucks? And, and, and then the shit got even bigger because we made YouTube videos a la ESPN with like bracketology where Hassan Minaj and Roy Wood Jr. <laughs> would break down this next round and what could we look forward to or what happened in the last round? Why did Trump supporters take out Trump so swiftly? And so being able to see the best of all those, like that's, that's great. It's just truly great. And so that's, that's like uh, the most joyous version the hardest version was just some of the infrastructure, some of like the older cultural norms that didn't jive. Like I came from like a freewheeling, like, yo, we use tech platforms like Slack and we nimble on this. And so the levels of like approval, the what the meeting schedules, they're like, when can I literally get time from people to take a look at some of the stuff we're doing so that we can do new right. stuff? And what is that? It's like workflowy change management, it's like some real business corporate stuff. Of like, how do you change an organization? And I think what added to the challenge for me and probably for all is that the underlying thing was changing at the same time. Right. And so you're like, while Trevor is figuring out who is Trevor as host, while writers are figuring out who is, while executive producers are figuring while all that's happening, and then here's this internet dude, you know, coming over here talking about apps and bracketology and like, you know, hackathons and what is going on here. <laughs> like, it is a lot of change, you know, all at one but time. I mean, right? seemingly yeah. that's a vital component now to any, especially major TV show, or is, yeah. there's going to be a, a digital element working in tandem with that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I have, you know, I think what, where we are no longer in sync, because I obviously don't work there anymore, though I have you know, good feelings about my time there, is like there's so much stuff I want, want to do, and there's not quite enough. It's probably too soon, you know, in many ways. And I like, uh, but I still want to do those things. So being not there, uh, despite some sadness of like loss of that team, is also like, okay, I'm outside the gate again. <laughs> I can get crazier, you yeah. know, <laughs> like, and, and there's, there's restrictions to being in, inside of any institution as well. Um, and so the, the liberation creatively is back. The imagination gets to expand again. It's no longer an attempt to adapt to an onion voice or adapt to a daily show voice or what I think a Trevor voice might be, which has its upsides. It's like, what's the Baratunde voice? You know, yeah. let's go back to that and let's take my own advice um, and, and start building again. So bringing that all back to stand-up. So through this, all these years of The Onion and Daily Show, and you've been doing stand-up off and on mm -hmm. after having started doing it, and now you're back at it. How does this all maybe affect your approach to getting up in rooms and saying jokes? Yeah. Um, so I'm basically rediscovering my stand-up voice. And I've, I've seen other comedians talk about it, you know, when, if they've gone off to do multi-million dollar movies <laughs> you know, my, my detour is a little different like mm -hmm. I didn't go off and get super famous and kind of come back to it but I did go off and get super experienced in some other modes of comedy digital stuff and writing books and speaking which is different from stand-up um, so it's changed my approach in that 
I'm still figuring out my approach. Like I had a way that I did stand up. Mm -hmm. I had material that I knew I talked about. I had a physical rhythm. I had a tone of voice and it was pretty honed, you know, for the first seven years <laughs> to, to get up, to get a peak out. Actually the first 10, yeah, 2002 to 2012, I was like a pretty uninterrupted trajectory of improvement in a certain way of honing and whittling down in a certain way. And then I've blown that up and I've gone out and like learned all this other stuff. And so coming back, partly I'm still blind and that's a bit terrifying because I don't quite know where I'm coming out at it, but it's also exciting because I don't have to rely on, like I was a bit bored. Like if I go back and look at my other stuff, like I would never want to approach it that way. Mm -hmm. So I'm in an experimental phase right now where I'm thinking about how personal to get and like what is the, the person I, I used to fly at such a, a high level, such a head level. And like how do I drop it down to something a bit more emotional, a bit more personally relatable. I found that opened people up a lot more. It's still not my natural place to start, but I'm trying to push myself there. The other approach is thinking about how like newsy to be. You know, there's when I first started doing stand-up dude legit, I would sit at a desk on stage with a blazer and <laughs> run down like headline jokes like I was on SNL my own you know, bootleg weekend update. And again, that was there was not much like emotion or heart to it and no one knew anything about me. It was like, oh, you're just talking about Bush all the time. And so I, with Trump, you know, I don't, I don't want to quite approach it that way. So I'm still figuring out what that approach is. Um, I used to be really uh, against for just principle reasons that I adopted from some other comedians. Like, you can't bring notes on stage. It's totally unprofessional. I started to play around with that. Like maybe it helps to like uh, tonight. I probably won't um, just because I still carry that. And I want the goddamn Hollywood improv. And I want to try. I want to be like, you know, whatever. It's, not, it's 10 minutes. Like I'll figure it out. But um, yes, yeah, so I, I think the the approach for me is about still figuring out what the approach is. Yeah. Um, and the reason I'm doing it, you know, when I when I started, there was a clear like being a stand up is something I kind of wanted to do. Now, I don't aspire to like live on the road and do full-time stand-up comedy, but it's it's a great workout. It's a really unvarnished testing ground. You know, Twitter, all the social media stuff is a little manipulated. Um, tone, you lose a lot. It's pretty flat. Time of day, what audience you've managed and curated. I didn't bring most of the people that are going to come tonight. You're just people. <laughs> And, and so how that's received and how I can respond in real time and not go back to my corner, um, that more flying without a, whatever the metaphor is, is, uh, again, a bit terrifying and a bit exciting. But you're so aware of it. And yeah. I guess that comes with the years of, of doing it. Cause anything. I'm not a baby anymore. Like I'm 39 and I've lost people in life. You know what I mean? Like I've seen people that I love die and I've had great career moments and I've had good jobs and I've not had them before and I've been rejected by audition teams and I've been told that the work that meant the most to me wasn't quite a fit, you know. So I've, I've been through enough rejection, uh, I've been through enough success that I'm, I think I'm pretty level-headed about the thing and, and so the reason to come back is, is partly because I know enough to know the value mm -hmm. and I don't know how often is, I'm not gonna be up five nights a week that, totally destroy my relationship with my girlfriend and myself, you know, like there's other things I want to do, but, uh, part of me, it respects the workout and part of me, you know, 
to, if I'm really honest, like what's that approval of peers and of the audience, right? It's like, oh, it'd be really cool to be just funny with just the mic, mm-hmm. not with my slideshow, yeah. not with my my Twitter, you know, plugins. Well, how much, um, cause you've done Ted talks and yeah. lots of public speaking. Yeah. How much has that informed standup and kind of, I guess, um, you know, both sides of it. Like how's the standup informed that? So the standup informs that is, is pretty clear. I'm just a funnier keynote speaker than most conferences have ever had. Mm-hmm. And so it's like a cheat code for like, if you're talking to a business crowd, they're just not used to someone who understands their world also being able to mock the hell out of it. Right. I spoke to a marketing conference earlier this week and I slayed, man. <laughs> um, because I could really talk about their world, but I was also outside of it enough to roast the hell out of them. Um, so that is, you know, I bring any pretty basic stand-up craft to that universe and it's novel. And most speakers aren't trained to do 10 years of stand-up before they mm-hmm. start giving addresses in colleges and conference centers across the world. Um, in terms of coming back from that to stand-up, partly it's, it's harder um, because I, I leave some of the physical tools. I've also learned to play with my slideshow. That's like a character, and it can fill in kind of the way Stephen Colbert used the word in, in the Colbert Report. You let that be a punchline. You throw an animated GIF in there. just mm-hmm. the, And so it's, it's a richer experience and stand up is so unplugged that I, I can't lean on any of those things. It's like, you know, being an improver with a team and then going to solo stand up work. There's nobody's going to catch me when I fall, except maybe the person in the front row physically. So, um, but there is a confidence and there's a, an attempt, you know, at a story. I think when I'm delivering a talk about my book or the future of, of media or race. Like I'm trying to get people somewhere. And in my early stand-up, I wasn't really trying to take anybody on the journey. I was just saying funny things in a somewhat chaotic mm-hmm. order. And so what I've been trying to do is bring the storytelling I've been doing on stages like Ted and The Moth. And like, can I bring that into stand-up? Um, that is not what you're gonna see tonight, just heads up. I'm in a scattershot mode right now because I'm just like freaking out from the first week of Trump. But, um, but it's something I wouldn't have discovered in the relatively unstructured land and, and open expectations of a stand-up comedy club, which is like cycling through those audiences, their expectations just make me laugh. Whereas a, a TED audience, like you gotta tell us, a moth, you literally have to tell a story. Right. Beginning, middle, end. Did you change throughout the process? So I thank you for that question because I honestly haven't thought about it in both ways. And I think it will affect how I try to use both to I'm all about perspective. <laughs> You're deep like that, right? Thing. Yeah. No, I get it. You're evolved. Well, speaking of evolution, I mean, comedy has changed so much, and yeah. I think people consume it in so many different ways. And every so, orifice, man, it's disgusting. <laughs> um, but from from you know consuming it online to still comedy clubs and uh, UCB and, and you know improv and mm-hmm. and now more multimedia stuff. Where do you see the future of live comedy going? Do you think that the audiences are becoming savvier? It's, um, yeah. I mean, they're becoming less patient. I don't know that that always equates to savvy. There's, um, I can see a real split in the future of live performed comedy. On the one end, I can see the heavy dose of multimedia, screen indulged everything, burning people out. I don't need, I'm tired of holding up my phone. It's, my pinky hurts. Like, it's pretty uncomfortable and it's isolating and it's becoming more rare 
to be in a room with people having a shared physical and mental and emotional experience. We used to do that at church. Uh, that got replaced by like CrossFit and yoga and juice. And I think there's a role for live comedy in literally stitching us back together in a, in a relatively unplugged way. I think that's why things like The Moth have blown up. Folks just want to be in the same room and hear the same story at the same time mm-hmm. in the company of other people. And it's not high tech at all. On the other end of the spectrum, live performance in general is going to change. More lasers. More lasers. Okay. Hollow everything, yes. man. I'm talking AR. I'm talking VR. I'm talking hollow lens on the hollow deck <laughs> and uh, highly mediated, you know, really fantastical stuff that involves the audience in a way that it was never possible that there's screens involved and you know I actually was a part of a project I was trying to merge comedy with Google Glass at the MIT Media Lab and there was a a, a person there who had access to multiple Google Glass and he wanted to try to do something with improv and I had a little background in it from a summer in Chicago and so we basically um, connected the audience to the players through their heads up glassware and you know instead of verbally asking the audience for suggestions people would text things in we would show the view of characters on live streamed cameras and people would have to try to guess what role they were we would change their motivation midstream as opposed to like articulating it so the audience knew but the other players didn't know except the one and they had to convince these other players now I'm a cop now I'm your husband and so changing that taught me that there is as much probably magic in embracing tech in a live performance as there is in shunning it. Mm-hmm. And and we're going to discover a new way. I think we're in this weird middle space where mostly it's distracting. And mostly it's like, oh, the audience has cell phones and they're live streaming, they're selfieing, they're texting, uh, they're being impatient because I heard this before. Right. Like, they don't never apply to a musician because comedy just feels different for some reason. So that's, I don't know which of those would win out. I don't know if it has to come down to one winning out but I think the future is as unplugged as it is hyper connected good answer thanks man no I'm excited about the future <laughs> you asked the right man futurist comedian apparently well I guess my final question oh yeah if you're ready for it uh, um, what are we gonna do like with the president and all this stuff I'm oh, we're gonna kidding. laugh at him <laughs> we're just gonna laugh him out of office um, he hates that as someone that's doing and creating constantly you know what how do you get through the gatekeeper of yourself I guess and whoa dude I just got an aneurysm game changer I'm bleeding from my nostrils and my ears how do you get beyond the gatekeeper of yourself I think I mean I'm for me personally as, as a creator yeah um, you know and the resistance as it's called by a lot of authors mm. how do you take those steps I guess and part of it's like what is your daily routine do you have a routine like what what did, how do you get from day to day getting stuff done in a perfect world you seem like you're pretty happy yeah I'm pretty happy I'm not a hyper depressed or miserable or super self-loathing human I have okay. I have my doubts I'm discovering more about myself and one of the more recent discoveries I've made is that there's more to discover about myself and that's exciting and frightening, which is the theme of this episode yeah. with you. Like excitement makes theme of my fright. life. <laughs> yeah, that, and that is a good life, I think. And if you're not experiencing both, you're probably not learning and growing enough. You're playing it too safe. Uh, or you're so captive 
that you don't have the freedom to, which is sad from another direction, maybe not of your own choice. So I interpret your question the, the latter way, but also in a, in a creative way. Um, how do you get beyond the gatekeeper of yourself, your own limitations, your own expectations? And even especially, you, you know, when you're working for The Daily Show in the yeah. Onion and you work at a comedy club, you have, you know, expectations of others for you. Yeah. So even more so like when you have to be your own self-starter. Yeah. And like, you're like, I'm going to create a conference and where, you know, developers and writers yeah. are working together. How do you, on a, if you had nothing to do tomorrow, what does that day look like? Oh man, there's, <laughs> that's a good one. If I had nothing to do tomorrow. Um, I probably just go to the ocean. Um, no, so what m- my motivation and my techniques for getting things done without an organization to make me do it is uh, I think I just have some inner drive. I think I had a mother who demanded excellence and I still hear her voice from time to time. I think there's part of me that just can't not. Uh, if anything, controlling and being more disciplined about it is a greater challenge. I've never lacked for doing. I have lacked for focus in what I've chosen to do, as my resume and work history have, <laughs> will show. Um, it's like, what is, a futurist? Wait, race comment? <laughs> Wait, but he's talking about Trump? But what's this coding thing? <laughs> so yeah, there's been a lot going on, maybe because I've been doing uh, overly you know, or in an unfocused way. So I don't have a daily routine. Um, I am in currently, like I'm on a 10-day, five-city jaunt of speaking and stand-up and meetings and conferences and seeing friends, uh, and that my life without the job doesn't lend itself to like a daily pattern. I do work out on a regular basis. I'm recovering from a sprained ankle and a car accident, so that's throwing that off a little bit. But in a week, I try to do yoga a couple times, try to keep up with the boxing, and that's I find the physicality of like regular physicality is very helpful. And then I have blocks of time that I devote to life maintenance, catching up on inbound everything, dealing with money, dealing with requests, denying things. I have like entertainment blocks of like, I'm just gonna chill out and like consume media, not in like a workhorse mentality. I just, I wanna enjoy what other creators are making. Uh, I have time that's devoted to this other important person in my life, my girlfriend, and then friends and family around that that I'm trying to be better about like actually carving out. Me and my sister have like a weekly time where we make sure to check in with each other, like on the phone, not through Facebook mm-hmm. and texting. And so those provide some of the the um, kind structure. of anchor points yeah. or structure, uh, the skeleton of a schedule. And then I just, I'm a project driven. So... I did a series for Spotify and Mike.com, and that had structure for the eight weeks or so that we were working on that. I did a piece for National Geographic, and that had, let's go shoot this in the field. Now we're in the edit booth. Now we're doing VL. Now, so each of these gigs, I've had a podcast, and that provided its own rhythm. Um, but I think there's, there's something else to your question as I heard it. How do you avoid being your own gatekeeper? And... I interpreted it as like, how do you stay creative? How do you stay interesting to yourself and not just fall back into these patterns? And on on the first part, on the structure, I took a, I try to keep learning and I don't always um, succeed, but I'm, I'm at a point now where I'm used to when I go to a conference, like I'm speaking there and that's why I'm there. And I don't necessarily stick around and I'm just in and out to do my thing. And I'm trying to stop doing that. Like, 
just go to learn. Just shut up and listen. I've been going to museums more lately, which I never did much in terms of art museums as a kid. I didn't grow up going to art museums. I had no knowledge of art. I felt really dumb about art for until very recently, and I still feel dumb, but I'm less ashamed of it. And, and letting myself feel the emotional impact of something new and different, letting my brain absorb knowledge that I don't think I already have. It's not about me telling you what I've learned. It's like, oh, let me just listen to this other expert. And a conference that I'm there to speak at, I'll try to go for a full day before my talk and just hear other speakers to learn. And then I put myself in a structured environment. It's a new, um, it's like a workshop. It's called the Art of Freelance. And I don't get paid to say any of this, but I am um, a, an avid uh, proponent of it because it was designed by a freelance photographer who you know, had this epiphany that, hey, without structure, it's really hard to get things done. Without a group to hold you accountable, mm-hmm. it's really hard to get things done. And like you talked about with making, you know, I was like, just make stuff. And you brought up the idea of making in a community, like meet other makers. I think for those of us who are in these artistic pursuits that are relatively solo, having that community is really helpful. So Art of Freelance is like this 10-week program where you pick a creative project to execute. And then you hold yourself and the others in the group accountable throughout these weekly check-ins. You create a, a roadmap and a timeline and objectives for each week. And then each week you join a Google Hangout with your peers. And it's based here in Los Angeles. Um, but it, it can work in a distributed fashion. I think they're retooling it right now. And I got a lot out of that. I got some tools for structuring myself, even if I don't do that again. I also was like, huh, I might, I might do that for that book project next time. Yeah. Like if you have something you want to do, and even if you don't do the specific art of freelance model, you know, knowing that it can be helpful to have a community, uh, real milestones, real accountability, that changes a lot because it's it's a lot to expect people to do all that all on their own. Like be creative, be disciplined, be respectful of your own time, be invested in your relationships, pay your bills on time, uh, all at the same damn time. That's a pretty rare individual who's that motivated, that disciplined, that good at life, that does all this on their own. There's very few. And especially nowadays where you know, you're not just a comedian, but you're a writer and a cultural critic and 17 other things. Yeah. Like everyone and, is. And the distractions, you know, futurist comedy comes with futurist distractions <laughs> like notifications and new apps and like a yet another Netflix series that they shoved down my throat and I'm up till three in the morning. Like, how did it get to be three in the morning? Why am I watching a show called 3%? I don't even speak Portuguese. 3%. Yes. What do you think? I, I enjoyed it. I did. Um, I was surprised that I enjoyed the English overdub as much as I did versus subtitles. Felt it's like a Hunger Gamey kind of vibe, but uh, I really um, I liked it. It's not like talk about gatekeepers. The greatest show, but it was good. Yeah, and I appreciated the casting. I appreciated the setting, and the ruth. It's basically like Elysium meets Hunger Games in Brazil. Mm-hmm. That's a, that's my little elevator mashup description. What did you think? I enjoyed it. Yeah. I'm, I'm not good at talking about things that I've seen. <laughs> but no, I just made the connection. Like that. That's like the ultimate three percent. Is like the gatekeeper. Yeah. In fiction. Check it out, folks. 3%. It's on Netflix, along with everything else you don't need to watch right now. Oh, God. I'm, I just started Friday Night Lights? What am I thinking? Oh, you never watched it? No. Man, that opening... Just explosions it. in the sky. They, that band will get you crying. You didn't even know you had tears in you. But like most Tammy Taylor, one of the greatest no, TV like, moms. It's like 22 episodes, six or seven seasons. I'm like, 
I'm not going to be doing anything for the next three months. No, it's why I, I never watch The Sopranos and I probably never will. It's like, it's too late for me. Yeah. I'm not going to catch up on certain cultural things. I'll just not get it. I'm fine with not knowing. A cultural critic? Yes. That not has all, not seen The Sopranos? Not all culture. There's plenty of culture outside of The How Sopranos. How will you know about... Italy. I'm assuming The Sopranos <laughs> is about Italy. I will visit. <laughs> I think it'll it'll cost me less in time and money to go visit Italy That's or parts of Jersey uh, than it would be to consume that entire series. Eventually, you know, if I have some other kind of injury and I'm laid up, I may take it on. But it's overwhelming the concept. Like the new series, I'm digging like a six episode season, a ten yeah. episode season. Be like the Brits, do like two or three seasons mm-hmm. and be done. But this. 10 seasons, 22. Can't no. do it. No. That's that's like too presumptuous of my time. Yeah. You got to pay me to watch. Maybe they will. That's probably come because it'll come with branded content uh, plugs. That's true. Because you'll end up buying more refrigerators or something. What if next year you can just pay just to, you can use the art of freelance to watch The Sopranos? <laughs> that w- <laughs> I actually want to pitch them like for the next 10 weeks I'm just gonna finally watch The Sopranos how much will other people in the group hate you like, week one I'm gonna watch season one uh, week two I'm gonna watch season two and I'll just check in and give it like plot summaries each bad week. news guys I, I didn't actually finish it <laughs> I, gotta watch I really love the stupidity of that thank you you're welcome yeah well Bertuna, this has been great me too it's illuminating I've, and I think um you're doing so many cool things and we didn't even really get into one tenth of them. No, there's, there's too many things, but thank you for some really interesting questions with more interesting Thanks. than I expected. Um, <laughs> by the way, I look or just life in general, just podcasts. who you are as a person, yeah, your yeah, reputation, yeah. what your family's told me about you. Oh, you're talking to my mom. I always do background checks before I do a podcast. Got it. So you, and you call the parents. I visited them. Do you know, open my Eagle? Uh, not well. Yeah. I know of him. He, um, taught my mom how to rap. And I like the idea of you talking to my mom. That's great. Um, well, Bertunde, um, I end every show by saying to remind people to work on your craft endlessly. Be a professional, be undeniable, and be cool as fuck always. You have been cool as fuck. Have a great show. If you're listening to this podcast and have a time machine, um, you can catch Bertunde tonight at the Hollywood Improv. <laughs> it's a Thursday sometime in January. There you go. All right. Thank have you, fun. Jamie. Bye. Night. For more episodes of Gatekeeper, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find me online at jamieflam.com, at jamieflam on Twitter, at gatekeeperpod on Twitter, and Flammy Davis Jr. on Instagram. This episode was produced by Andrew Steven, and a very special thanks to Buddy Peace for the music at the top and end of this and all episodes.